Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. As our climate changes, we need to find ways to feed our planet without damaging the environment. Now, farming is incredibly difficult, especially when the climate changes, there's more droughts or extreme weather events, and finding ways to grow crops healthily without causing damage to surrounding ecosystems and rivers and reefs is really, really tricky. This week, we look at what lessons we can learn from long-running studies between experiments with grass and crops and what they can teach us about climate change. Now, one of the challenges facing anyone who's tried to grow some plants, whether it be in a pot on your garden or in a field, is the availability of water. A hot summer and a dry summer can lead to what we call a drought, especially if it goes long periods of time without rain. This is something that is happening all over the world at different levels. I know in the US on the west coast right now they're having a large drought. Australia has just come out of a very long drought period where we're now in a very wet La Nina season. But drought is something very familiar to people in Australia and familiar to people across the world. And when a plant community is exposed to drought, well, things happen to the plants in that community. And what researchers from the University of Zurich have been diving into is what is the best mix of plants, or grasses in this case, to survive a long drought, and how these might adapt and change after an exposure to a long drought period. Now, these results were published in the journal Nature Communications. Lead author on this paper was Yixin Shen, along with Vogel, Wag, Zhu, Retat Garcia, and others. These researchers were using lots and lots of seeds, around a thousand experimental plant communities, all stored in pots. And what they were trying to study is how plants could respond to, not by one, but several extreme climatic events. Events that don't wipe out the species, but sort of see if it changes or adapts as a response to going through such an extreme traumatic event. So, this might be the case of a really bad drought, or a really bad flood, or a really substantive change of volcanic eruption. There's plenty of extreme climate events that can happen. And the researchers are really interested in the question of what happens afterwards, what changes in the species in response to such an extreme event. And they exposed experimental grassland communities to eight recurrent yearly droughts, or ambient conditions. And they did this in a large grassland biodiversity experiment that's located in Jena in Germany. They used seed offspring of 12 different species that were grown individually in monocultures or in two species mixtures and then subjected them to this simulated drought inside then a glasshouse from University of Zurich. Now what they saw is the offsprings from plants with a drought exposure history recovered much faster than from subsequent droughts than those in the plants without much of an experience of drought. Now this is pretty logical. If you've got through one drought, then you'll probably do better the next time around it happens. If you've never been through a drought before, well, then you're not going to do as well. And that was only true, though, for the plants that were grown in mixtures, not so much those that were grown in monocultures. Diverse plant communities did a lot better, because they could evolve with better cooperation um, between the two different species, leading to a more stable ecosystem. One that was a monoculture, well, that had a less chance of surviving the shock, and biodiversity is thus really important for the plant's adaption to these extreme events. They work better when they have this experience to share across. 
and the researchers really tried to dive into the conclusion. They found that the offspring of plants with some drought exposure history showed higher complementarity between the species, and this then boosted them during the recovery phase when they were no longer in drought and they were then species complementarity means that the species with different types of grass, one will hold back and let the other fill that gap and they sort of share the area better. And this is enhanced because you've got to work together to get through the extreme event of a drought. And then once you've agreed a way to work together, what these plants have done, working in a complementary way, when the extreme condition is removed, they still flourish. And this is an important part because you're having this transgenerational reinforcement of this complementarity. The complementarity that sharing didn't disappear. And then when the next drought came, the community was able, of plants and seeds, were able to use these same lessons learned again. And that's really fascinating to show that how plants are able to adapt and weather the storm of extreme climatic events, but they can only do so in a diverse community. And if it's a monoculture, then they tend to struggle quite a bit. Now, this research was published in the paper Nature Communications with lead author Juxing Chen, and it's a fascinating insight into how plants can adapt to extreme climate events, and what is better, having some diversity or having a monocrop or monoculture in the soil. And that's what we'll turn to next, looking at examples of monocrops and what they can do to the soil environment. One of the simple things to overlook in our challenge of growing food to feed the planet is the role that soil plays. And not just in actual producing of good crops and good growing regions. Farmers know that soil is incredibly important for growing a good plant. But the soil itself and what's living in the soil also has wider impacts. There's the efficient use of land area growing different types of crops, and that's one aspect of it. But there's also the aspect that relates to climate, because what happens in our soils has a direct link to often things like, on a macro scale, climate change, and on a sort of medium scale, specific areas of river flow and pollution damage from fertilizers. An example of this is what can happen with agricultural runoff in somewhere like North Queensland in Australia, where agricultural runoff from a lot of farmland flows down through the streams and ends up in the oceans. When I'm talking about agricultural runoff, often what we end up there is with nitrogen, excess nitrogen that's not absorbed by the soil or the plants, and then flows down through the rivers, all of this fertilizer, and then sometimes also even pesticides as well that flow down the river system and end up in where the river ends up, the estuaries and the reef. In the Queensland case, the Great Barrier Reef, a, a World Heritage site, a site of great environmental significance. So agricultural runoff can cause issues for reef systems, for river health, for other ecosystems downstream, quite literally, of the farm. But also, on a macro sense, you can end up with more emissions of nitrous oxide. Now, from fertilizer usage, obviously involves nitrogen, and nitrogen can escape and leach out in the environment and end up with more nitrous oxygen. Now, nitrous oxide is a, a very potent greenhouse gas, and is one of the things that we're also trying to cut down on, because the more greenhouse gases we have, obviously, the more our climate change. So, cutting down on wasting of fertilizer, having good healthy soils without having to rely on 
really over-the-top fertilization means a lot of benefits for farms. It means a lot of benefits for the environment locally and also globally. And it's a really tricky thing to get your head around because a lot of the times in agriculture, systems can be set up to maximize for a certain type of crop. And there's lots of different farming and cropping strategies, but an individual choice for your farm is not necessarily what's best for the system as a whole. And sometimes in certain environments and countries, you end up with a place which is really well suited to growing certain types of crops. And then you can end up with a place where for a number of political or institutional reasons, they sort of specialize on a certain type of crop. And that's something that happens in the US Midwest, which primarily grows mostly monocrops, corn or soya beans. Now, the problem with these crops amongst many is that, well, these crops, when you grow in a monocrop, can make the soil itself more vulnerable to both human-caused anthropogenic or natural disturbances. And one of the reasons is that corn-based systems have often got a low use of nitrogen, which means you end up with this nitrogen buildup in the soil that causes runoff, but it also degrades the overall soil health and contributes to greenhouse gases. Now, this is obviously not great for the soil health, but can also be bad for yields, not just then, but in the future. So if you break up this monocropping with what is often be called cover cropping, this often actually can be financially hugely beneficial for the farmers, though different and a change of practice than simple stable planting the same thing over and over again. So more effort, but definitely has good yields and good benefits to do so for the farmer. But it also has really important things that it does for the soil, such as providing physical protection to the soil, preventing runoff or, or basically leaching away. Then when you lose all that nice topsoil, it adds organic matter to the soil and it scavenges any excess nitrogen that's in the soil and sequesters it, prevents it from getting emitted as greenhouse gases, and improves the microbiological health of the soil as well. So cover cropping is like not only a physically beneficial thing for farmers to do, but on the local environmental level, very helpful. And on the macro environmental level, also helpful too, because it cuts down on greenhouse gas emissions. Now, what if you want to undo some of that work and turn your soil that has been just you know, continuously being planted with one crop for a long time, like most of 20% of the Illinois crop are actually continuously placed corn. If you want to convert these foils and try to recover the soil, how could it be done? Well, some long-term experiments at the University of Illinois have been used as a basis for a couple of papers published by researchers, a doctoral graduate student from the Department of Crop Scientists at UI, Nakanyan Kim. And Kim published two papers, one in agronomy and another one in Frontiers in Microbiology, about what's happening to the soils themselves when they try to recover from this continuous cropping, and doing so by utilizing what's known as cover crops. Now, University of Illinois has a couple of long-running crop-based experiments, and many places across the world have these gardens or plots where they're doing long-term studies, and they're set up for 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, as even some with really long little lead time plots that have been research areas in, in Europe and in, in America as well. And in particular, the University of Illinois ones were being used by Kim in this study to look at how these areas can recover after being a long time of a single crop in the soil. Now, what Kim found is that in the short term, planting a cover crop, i.e. taking out the corn and planting a cover crop on top, doesn't actually miraculously change decades of bad growth in soil health. But it does slowly but surely 
start to change the microbial dynamics in response um, that's in the soil itself. Investigating the detail of and diversity in these microbiological communities, we found some pretty interesting things. So, long-term excessive use of fertilizers and monocrops, and also just planting cover crops, ends up with microbes that increase the risk of nitrous oxide emissions. So, both just using a lot of fertilizer or planting cover crops is still going to lead to some extra nitrous oxide emissions, or at least promote bacteria that like doing that. Now, that's bad news for global warming, but cover crops also can enhance soil biodiversity, and so you end up with more microbes with more diverse niches that they occupy with special areas of practice. So there's positives and negatives to just planting the cover crop. It's not necessarily all good news. But if you look at the way these microbes can be involved in the nitrogen fixing part, taking the nitrogen, excess nitrogen from the fertilizer and sequestering it into the soil through nitrogen fixing rather than letting it escape for emissions, this is something that microbes can have a really big role to play in. And that's one important thing he published in his second paper in Frontiers in Microbiology. And the problem is that when you have a lot of nitrogen, excess nitrogen fertilizer in the soil, the community of bacteria living in the soil adapts and changes. And basically, they get a disrupted nitrogen cycle in, inside them, which makes them less good at actually recovering and, and sequestering that nitrogen and stopping it from becoming runoff. In other words, in just planting a crab cup for two years alone may not be enough to undo the damage to the soil, the changed nature of the microbial communities in the soil that you could get after 36 years of continuous over-fertilization of corn. But it is a slow but gradual process, and it obviously has some benefits. You just need to consider what else is happening. So planting different types of crops and environments and growing food is a really important thing, and it relies on a number of factors, weather, climate, available water, crop types that you plant, the, the, the genus of the seeds or the variety that you're planting in the ground, but also what's happening in the ground as well, whether or not you're applying any fertilizer, and the bacteria and that live in the soil. All of these things are mixed together intricately, making farming a very complex process. Yes, if it's treated like set and forget, I plant this type, I come back, I add this fertilizer, I water it, I come back and do the same thing for 40 years, well, you can end up with some pretty bland and monotonous soil. And even planting cover crops, which do help, aren't able to undo enough of the damage of 40 years of simple neglect can do. You can't recover the soil magically in a short period of time, but certainly there's benefits for using these types of cover crop techniques and studying in more detail the way in which our soil behaves, because it's an important thing we need to do to not only improve obviously, ability to produce foil in a changing climate, but also our, reduce our runoffs to our reefs and rivers, preventing them getting damaged, and cutting down on emissions, particularly nitrous oxide emissions and other greenhouse gases to further reduce climate change. So plants and soil may not seem like much, but it can have a big impact on the way in which our climate changes. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we find about how soil and plants can respond to extreme climate. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.